Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. A reminder before we get started that we are on YouTube. Our uh, our link, our account is I'm probably wrong about everything. So this episode, for example, is already up there. So you can watch it if you would prefer that instead. Or if you're driving in your car, this is the best way to do it. Today's guest is Zapper Alep. Uh, he is the Vice Executive Coordinator for the ISU, which is the International Support for Uyghurs. Today, he discusses the humanitarian concerns facing the Uyghur people by the Chinese government through state-sponsored genocide. This genocide has been recognized by the U.S. and the U.N. as currently ongoing. Uh, so this is not up for debate. This is known that, that these issues, these humanitarian concerns are happening right now. Uh, this episode is all about promoting awareness of these issues. So if you have questions, please email us at robsprobablywrong at gmail.com or check out the isupportoyghurs.org website. That's isupport, U-Y-G-H-U-R-S.org for more information. Uh, this is certainly not a light episode. It's, it's informative and it uh, it's quite scary, to be honest. Um, so I, I hope you find it informative. And once again, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to email us. Thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. We have with us Zapir uh, Alip. Thank you yep. so much for uh, being on the show today. And uh, what what you're going to talk about is is very important and very concerning. Uh, what what I'm sort of what I was picking up on is that mm -hmm. the, the 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 Uyghur situation in in China it kind of right. echoes to what was happening in the 20, 20th century with uh, with with the Jewish population and other populations mm -hmm. in Western Europe. Yeah. I mean, that's an, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a comparison people kind of tend to shy away from. And I think that, you know, there's a justification for that as well, because Holocaust is its own, is yes. its own thing. Um, and, you know, it's one of the tropes is to easily compare everything that's horrible to the Holocaust or Nazism. But, there are obvious um, parallels that just can't be ignored, including you know, the term concentration camps, mm. um, just because that's exactly what's happening is that you have concentration camps in China. And for the longest time, they were denying that these camps exist. So this goes back to like 2015. Um, so you know, quite a quite a bit of time. Um, where an initial kind of strategy, uh, the Chinese government formed a strategy on the Uyghurs. And part of that was developing these concentration camps. And circa 2017, 2018, we started getting satellite photos, proof that these camps actually exist. People start disappearing. Um, China starts denying the existence of the camps, but obviously the satellite photos, you know, you can't doctor those. It's multiple nations can verify that too, right? <laughs> yes. It's not something you can just like Photoshop, oh, you know, there's concentration camps out there, but no, it's uh, real evidence. And so once they found that, you know, they could not, they could no longer not deny the existence, they mm. took a propaganda route. Um, they're really mm. good at uh, information, information warfare, um, just as you see with Russia. It's a lot about 
managing propaganda. They have a big, big budget, right? We're talking about billions of dollars that they can use. Um, and they're very influential in the global political sphere as well. And so what they did is they reclaimed the concentration camps as um, re-education camps, right? And we say re-education camps because it's not education. You have people in there who are PhDs, university presidents, doctors, you know, very well accomplished um, individuals who um, are very well educated and they're doing really well in, in, in their life who are, you know, disappeared into these camps. That, Go ahead that and look term... at the question. Yeah. Well, that that term re-education yeah. is so like so often that's associated to genocide, be it cultural or otherwise. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, indigenous North Americans in Canada, they went to residential schools and that was part of a re-education plan. And we right. all know how that went. Horrible. Yeah, I mean, residential schools are obviously horrible in its own right. And it took well, about 100 years for um, the government to realize that and kind of really apologize and make amends um, as much as possible, I would say. Um, mm. In the case of China, unfortunately, it's, you know, we don't want it to take 100 years um, for that right. to happen. It and um, they're not a democratic country either, right? So it's it's very much totalitarian um, in that sense with uh, Xi Jinping's government. Mm. It's a regime uh, that is, you know, there's no accountability of any sort. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's no way that you can have kind of internal protest that, you know, get people to raise their voice and be like, oh, this is wrong. You know, that's not going to happen inside China. And uh, what we're seeing is that because of China's powerful economic, you know, stature in the world, um, it's incredibly hard for other countries also to comfortably express, um, well, not comfortably, but to dissent and to raise uh, their concerns. So let's let's sort of start with with the Uyghur people and, and understanding them. Now, as I was saying before, it's... Uh, th- this is a population of over 20 million people right. in in sort of around the area of uh, close to the Pakistan border, but mm-hmm. in China. And these are Chinese Muslims. And yeah. people often don't think that there are Muslim Chinese, right? Oh, yeah. There definitely are Muslim Chinese. It's, yes. Um, actually but but people, people such as myself, mm-hmm. we, we, we often... Right. You know, we're not so versed in that. So let's yeah. talk about the, the, the Uyghur people, starting mm-hmm. with, like, ha- what is the cor- correct pronunciation? Yeah. So uh, it's, I mean, people say Uyghur, but uh, the actual pronunciation is Uyghur. Um, there's like a, like a, I don't know how to say it in English, but there is a bit of a oomph at the beginning. So Uyghur. Uy. Uh, Uy. And it's kind of difficult for to pronounce for regular people. So people right. tend to call it Uyghur or, uh, you know, uh, have their own ways of saying it, but the the real pronunciation, as we say it in, in our native language, is Uyghur. Um, so it's um, that's how you pronounce it. Um, there are different ways of writing it, but the general kind of accepted term is U Y G H U R S, like Uyghurs uh, as a um, as as a people. And then the country itself, so our kind of region, we like to refer to it as East uh, Turkestan. Um, mm-hmm. So we are, you know, culturally um, Turkic people. Uh, so it's Muslim, culturally Turkic, uh, close to, uh, you know, there's resemblance to, um, you know, you have Uzbekistan, uh, you know, there's also some Kazakhs, uh, some Turkish um, people. And our language is actually very close to um, to the old Turkish language that they have before Ataturk. So the Turkish language got modified. It got uh, kind of renewed, modernized by Ataturk. Um, but before that, 
it used to be uh, the same. So he spoke the same language, actually, mm. with modern-day Turkey. Um, but in general, so Turkic people, Muslims, uh, like you said, 20, 25, 30 million people. Um, you know, that's, uh, But the Chinese census always uh, puts it down to like 11 million, or they kind of suppress it. Um, and that's another problem is that when you have you know, national statistics or the government, it's in their interest to suppress the population counts for um, if there is like a you know, future, right. um, you know, referendum or something, you can tell, you know, there's not a lot of uh, Uyghurs here or if, you know, it's a lot of dangers with playing with census data. Um, but yeah, so 25 million people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and our region is one of the uh, sixth largest um, land masses in China. You know, there's a lot of resources, oil and gas. Um, there's some farming, agriculture, a lot of tomatoes and cotton. Um, so it's a very resource um, rich region compared to the rest of china uh, and it's connect it's it's in terms of the uh, belt and road initiative you'll notice that it actually connects china to um basically the rest of you know the western world right so including borders with pakistan india but it, it opens up that kind of um you can't do the belt road initiative without going through east Turkestan. so for again for people who you know they're new to this they're picking this up what is this one belt one road economic policy that the chinese government is is working to implement mm -hmm. i mean i think the one belt and road initiative is a complex topic on its own yes um, but yeah. in general you could say it's a tr it's an attempt to revive the silk road so the silk road was a really really um, economically uh, rich uh, trade route, right? So you have connections from the West all the way to the East. Uh, and if you control that trade route, obviously you make a lot of money from that because, you know, people will pay tariffs or certain percentages of, you know, to you for using that service. So the Belt and Road Initiative is a series of shipping lanes, shipping ports, uh, pipelines, trains, highways that are built to uh, facilitate trade uh, with China, um, you know, between different countries from the east to the west. Um, so what basically what they did is, you know, in countries even like uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, they'll buy or, you know, they'll give you debt to finance your investment in uh, infrastructure. Uh, and then eventually when you aren't able to pay it off, they'll take ownership of that land yes. for 100 years or a really long period of time. Um, that already happened in Sri Lanka, a port yep. in Sri Lanka. Yeah, so there, it, it, it was a first kind of warning signal that, oh, yes, you know, if you don't pay it back, this is what the actual play is. They give you terms that are, you know, you, there's just no way for you to pay them off anyway. Um, and countries accept and they kind of lose their own sovereignty for their ports, and which is, you know, incredibly uh, horrible, right? You wouldn't want that to happen to your country, for example. And, and, and just so people understand that this, this one belt, one road, this mm -hmm. sort of Marco Polo silk, silk road, as you describe it, will give China uh, complete sort of unrestrained access to Europe, Africa, and the rest of Asia, making it a economic uh, monolith, you know, an yeah. economic behemoth. And with what's happening with, with – because it sounds like the first real – uh, uh, execution of this of the sort of inaction was with the CPEC, which is the China-Pakistan Economic uh, Order. Mm -hmm. And see, I'm reading off my notes here. And uh, and and Pakistan made this agreement with China, but they're making trades with them these loans that the interest rates are insane. And if Pakistan yeah. keeps it up, exactly like what what, what happened with Sri Lanka, they're going to have to to relinquish a lot of their economic advancements to the Chinese government. 
Yeah, so Pakistan's an interesting scenario. I mean, that goes more to the geopolitics of things. Um, it's a little right. bit sidetracked from the Uyghur conversation. But yes. Um, yes, because we do have a border with Pakistan, India, Pakistan is seen as a way for China to destabilize. Well, well, to you know, they don't they they have a beef with India for the you know for their shared um, border regions that they have. Um, so they try to encourage Pakistan or they support Pakistan. And but at the same time, Pakistan is a Muslim predominant country, uh, and that influence goes both ways. Where they're very silent on the Uyghur issue because they are so heavily invested with the Chinese government. They, you know, their, their economy is very heavily reliant on China. And, and, and it does tie into the, the, the Uyghur situation because um, there are, are members, you know, that, that are part of this diaspora that are in Pakistan and, you know, things are coming through like bio data collection, which they're oh, yeah. trying, they're trying to find out, you know, if you are actually of, uh, Uyghur uh, descendants, which again echoes to my concerns and parallels of the 20th century with what happened in Nazi Germany and Jewish people in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of uh, uh, finding out who and who was and who wasn't Jewish. Yes, like going through, uh, what is it, uh, ancestral lineages and um, identifying who is like, you know, going through and saying, okay, you're one sixth Jewish or, you know, cutting off a yes. certain limit where they see at what point do you end up in a concentration camp at that time. I think what's happening today is actually probably even a little bit more sophisticated than that, where they're able to go and, you know, they collect um, every biometric data point that you have, you're talking about fingerprints, you know, facial scans, mm. uh, DNA, um, you know, vocal patterns, uh, how you speak, how you walk, you know, this is a lot of data that you can collect and you can basically track somebody um, indefinitely with that data, right? So if you know how they talk, you have their, you know, voice print, you have their fingerprints, you have a facial scan, you can monitor them by, you know, you have cameras, surveillance cameras are, you know, everywhere in, in, in East Turkestan. Um, so it's it's really easy to track somebody's movements. Um, and the kind of no more nefarious aspect of DNA collection here is for organ um, harvesting. So uh, if you're able to take that, you know, data, you have the blood and the DNA and you can basically see if somebody's a match for a uh, organ um, uh, client, right? Uh, so there's a lot of, and China has a bad history of, um, this is, it goes back decades with the Falun Gong, but they have a history of, of selling organs and um, non-consensual uh, organ harvesting. So uh, if you are a prisoner uh, or if the government deems it necessary, they can uh, basically take your organs and um, perform medical uh, operations on you without um, your consent. Um, and, you know, there's uh, there's evidence of a specific, like you'll have, uh, there are photos of uh, where the airport, you'll have a specific organ harvest, well, an, an organ transfer lane, uh, express lane, because they're able to source these organs really quickly. Um, you know, it usually takes several months, maybe, you know, a lot longer than a few days uh, to, you know, find an organ and to, to do a transfer. Um, but China is able to do it really quickly. And that kind of raised eyebrows internationally as, you know, how are you finding these donors that quickly, right? And the, the answer, you know, is basically they're taking them without uh, uh, consent. Um, so you know, organ harvesting is just one of the issues. You're looking at several issues here. So first you have the concentration camps, yeah. right? People who are being enforced or imprisoned, taken from their families, um, you know, for a variety of kind of unjustified causes that they have. You know, if you are seen talking with somebody from abroad, if you have a family member who lives abroad, uh, if you uh, if you seem religious in any sense, you know, if you have, uh, you know, clothing that's, uh, 
you know, seen as religious or, um, you know, that's uh, seen as a, a, a kind of a stroke to independence. You know, if you have Easter, if you're wearing blue with a, you know, for, for, on top of my head there, you'll see the uh, Easter yes. sound like symbol for it. Like if you have something like that, uh, if you own any religious items, so you're talking about prayer mats or, you know, uh, literature, um, you know, if you are fasting, you know, there's a whole bunch of um, things that they can see and they say, okay, you, you're going to put you in a concentration camp because, you know, you're, uh, indoctrinated or you're an extremist right. that's what they're what they do and so you have concentration camps and then some people will basically graduate after a year so that you know you know graduate basically they go through their system they're sentenced to a year and then they're moved out to a forced labor camp right so uh, you have a transition so certain people will stay in the concentration camps for a really long time um, other people will be moved to forced labor camps those labor camps can be within the region of East Turkestan, but we've also seen prison transfers. So people are being moved out of the province to other parts of China uh, where they're used in, in factories um, that are, you know, guarded by, uh, by basically what's like a prison, uh, but you're making something for a company uh, and the company mm. would kind of hire you or you would be sent to them for free. And then the government or the company have some sort of arrangement there. Um, so you have con concentration camps, you have forced labor camps, then you have, um, you know, the facial, uh, the kind of surveillance apparatus that exists. You're talking about, you know, China going as far as hacking iPhones. And, you know, the, I think this was found out that you know, Apple recently discovered that they had an exploit, a backdoor system since 2018 that was exploited by uh, Chinese state actors. Um, so if you visited a certain website, they would plant a bug on your phone. Um, and, you know, that's all it took. You need to go on a website, right? So it was really easy for them to monitor uh, any kind of social network activity as well on your phone, anything that you do on your phone. Um, so no privacy at all. You have police stations every street. You've got surveillance cameras. Your phone's being monitored. It's, you know, there's, they know everything at that point. Um, in addition to that, you have these residential, it's the equivalent of residential schools, but it's, they, they call it state uh, orphanages. Um, so if you have two parents who have been put in the concentration camps, um, the children, what do you do with the children, obviously, right? So what they've done is they've taken the children and put them into um, what we, you know, concentration camps, but for children, it's, you know, prison walls, you know, you got wired fence on the, on the, on the walls. Um, and they're taught uh, Chinese culture and, uh, you know, the state indoctrination uh, to that effect, even though you know, these are not orphans. Um, they have parents, but uh, the right. state has locked up uh, their parents. Um, and then you obviously have, I think, more, one of the more recent uh, phenomena was that uh, they were um, forced sterilization of, of uh, and uh, abortions of, of, of Uyghur uh, women. Um, so when, when Canada declared um, what was happening in China as a genocide. It wasn't a um, kind of a political riffraff. Um, mm. It was very much a justified, you know, we've taken a look at the evidence and to the expect, to the level of, you know, the requirements um, for something to be declared a genocide, because there are criteria for a genocide convention for, for, for a state to call something a genocide. And in essence, you know, the um, targeting of Uyghurs specifically as an ethnic group uh, and the shrinking of the kind of demographic. So they're trying to, you know, um, aggressively reduce Uyghur population growth um, through various means. And so th those kind of, there's, there's several criteria involved, but it met the definition for, for genocide. And that's, you know, what, what we saw in parliament is um, the House of Commons vote on that and it, it, it passed, um, you know, uh, with a majority uh, in parliament. And that was one, it was just the first step, but it's recognizing that there is indeed a genocide was a, um, a major uh, stepping point um, 
and it took quite a time uh, because like this this is work that started since 2018 and it took basically three years um for the government of canada to recognize it as a genocide and we're you know other countries are still stepping up so we're looking at the us um you know the eu uh, other countries around the world to uh um to declare it a genocide because then you know china has you know they, they the governments are then held accountable to yes. um to act now now w- when i was watching doing some research because uh, America apparently has also labeled this a genocide, and, and I mean that's right. a huge thing because America is is the economic powerhouse currently, right. and I think it was Zhao Lejean, that's mm-hmm. my pronunciation, but he's the deputy chief China, uh, he's a deputy chief of the Chinese embassy, mm-hmm. and and his response to America calling this a genocide is that you need to get your own house in order. Yeah, it's not surprising. I mean. The Chinese kind of state apparatus is, yes. you know, deny, 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 and then yes. kind of distract, 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 or you know, put it on, put it on them. Or you know, it's not surprising. We, you know, I think there's uh, there was a tweet by the Chinese embassy in in, in the U.S. and in Washington. I think that said, okay, we stopped uh, the baby making machines in reference to the Uyghur woman, um, and they were celebrating that fact. Uh, you know, there's. Um, <laughs> it's bizarre. I mean, how they're reacting is just beyond belief. Um, and, you know, there's people within, uh, there have been leaks from within the Chinese government. And that's also why uh, I think it was possible to declare what's happening as genocide because it showed there was mm. clear intent. They are aware yes. of what they are doing. Um, this is government sponsored. And they, it, it went into details as to, you know, what the concentration camp guidelines are. Uh, so they had, you know, you know, they had plans laid out as to how they're going to do that, what kind of standards they're going to hold within, what's the kind of the building blocks. So the blueprint was, you know, leaked um, in addition to, you know, how people, how, how, how they were selecting people to go to the concentration camps, um, you know, their criteria for that. And there's a system in place. This isn't just course, ad hoc yeah. decisions, right? It's there's, not. It's not a random impetus thing. Oh, we're going to yes. lock up some people. There's policy in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we know that again. You know, uh, obviously, the Holocaust was the Holocaust, but we, but that was the end of it. I mean, it's not like that just happened overnight. Like there yes. was a lot of things going on, starting in like 1933. I mean, 19. We didn't just get to 1941. Right. When mm-hmm. when when the death camps really started to get into action, I mean, you know, because Hitler came to the conclusion that, well, you know, the Jews can leave. Nobody wanted them. So we have to have a solution for this for this problem. Right. Absolutely. Um, and it, that's the issue. People are seen as a problem when you start to identify human beings as a problem. The result is not something that you yes. want to you know, talk about, it, it gets ugly really fast. And I think that's the same thing here with China. China is seen as a one monolithic culture. Like when you look at Chinatown, it's just Chinese people, right? Mm-hmm. But in reality, China is, it's a confederation of different minorities and cultures. Yeah. Um, you know, you obviously have the predominant, ethnic, you know, the Chi- Han Chinese, yeah. but you also have, you know, Inner Mongolia, you've got Tibet, uh, you've got uh, us as Uyghurs, obviously. Um, and then there's like multiple different, you know, kind of groups within China with different languages, even um, that, you know, China tends to project itself as like, you know, we are one. And that's also, I think, part of the reason why they kind of really have done this is Uyghur culture is so distinct from Chinese culture, from, yes. from China. It's 
different language, different religion, different cultural practices, um, different history too. It's not, you know, it doesn't tie itself to the Han Chinese Empire. It's totally its own thing. Um, it, it, it's its own nation. Pretty much. And they don't like yeah. that idea. They they find it as a challenge to the monoculture that is, you know, Han, China. You know, it's, they're very much, um, they want to preserve that monoculture. Uh, and for whatever reason, because, you know, like you said, 25 to 30 million in light of like 1.1 billion. Right. What is that even? Like, what is the threat that China could potentially see from that? It's ridiculous what they're doing, right? Like, but it, it again goes to this whole uh, demonization of minorities. So, you know, they're seen like Uyghur people specifically are seen as barbaric, low, less educated, uh, you know, brute, less than the Han Chinese. Um, and that's an issue that's, you know, that it goes back several decades, right? There's always a kind of a propaganda in terms of, oh, we're better than them. Um, and that's, you know, taken, it's gotten a lot worse since the 2000s, um, where they've basically seen Uyghur people as, you know, just degenerates. And that's how they justify the population is like, look, these people are less than, um, so we're going to, you know, put them in concentration camps, but you know, it's because they're less than you. They're not the same as you. They're not human kind of, they're seen as, yes. you know, less than a it's human. inferiority, but, but that's, I'm trying to justify this because what, what it really does sound like, you know, and, and I know that these, we've gone on on tangents in terms of, you know, the OPEC and the one belt, one road, but I think mm -hmm. that this ties into it, right? That's kind of what I'm sort of picking up from this, that this is all part of this fourth industrial revolution and, and, and the Uyghur people, uh, Uyghur people, they're in mm -hmm. the way of this, right? Or they're making them seem like they're in the way of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's part of it, economics, but um, I just think there's something more inherently in-depth about it. I think there's, you know, when you have a totalitarian state, um, the crazy ideas of one person can, you know, it, it, if you have a democratic state, if somebody's insane Everybody or has some really bad ideas, there's some checks and balances in place that, you know, somebody can't do damage, but they can't do something that's, you know, irreparable or, you know, they, the, the extent of the damage is kind of contained. But when you have a totalitarian state, if that one person at the top has a horrible idea, um, there is no checks and balances. It gets executed. It gets done. And that's what happened. You know, the New York Times, they did great pieces on this that they published on the on the two leaks that happened from the Chinese government. Um, so these are internal papers. And it's basically Xi Jinping's directive to solve the Uyghur problem. And that's what started all of this, right? So, you know, economics aside, there's... Yeah. Solve this problem. I mean, yeah, we, 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 have to, we have to understand language here, right? It's absolutely, yeah. nobody's going to say something outright, but we have to read between the lines. And I don't think it, it, it takes much, you know, reading between the lines to understand, solve this problem. Like you say, when you view a, a nation as a problem, what is, what's the outcome of that? Well, you know, we can imagine, we can know. Yeah, I mean, and he already, gave a few speeches, and I think the the the, the quote unquote was um, show absolutely no mercy. Um, so you know, there's a great New York Times piece on this where they go through the leaks uh, page by page, and um, so the speech that started all of this out was you know Xi Jinping basically saying you know don't show any mercy at all, like go crack down, like you know we are the Communist Party of China, we're gonna solve this you know, problem essentially, right? So that's what, what it becomes an issue when you see people as uh, less than and when you start seeing them as a problem or, um, uh, you know, you know, that's the language there is important, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, the parallels with uh, um, other genocides um, obviously come to mind at that point.
The, the other thing that you mentioned is, is the propaganda machine and how they're able to create uh, villains out of the Uyghur people. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the sense that they're terrorists, right? Um, yeah, it's a common one. Terrorism is always a common one. And, and, and there enough, has been, there, there has been uh, you know, sort of, but, but is it terrorism or is it, are these freedom fighters who are defending? Mm. Well, not live, even, right? I, I wouldn't even go yeah. with that, that far as freedom fighters because right. there isn't a secret rebel militia somewhere in China that's trying to overthrow mm. the government. That's, okay. yeah. you know, China's it's internal people security just trying force. To live. Yeah, I mean, there's China's internal security force is massive. Like, I think they have more uh, police officers than they have in their army, right? Like, it's internal control is really important for them. And it's not like you have a secret rebel group that's trying to overthrow a country or, you know, like a civil war or something that doesn't exist. And uh, this notion of terrorism only came into effect after 2001. It was a, it was a convenient excuse for the Chinese government. Like, oh, look, we're also like on board with counterterrorism. It's Islamophobia. We're, yeah, we're going to do our part by, you know, cracking down on Uyghurs who are terrorists yes. um that was a convenient uh kind of it was handed to them on a platter you know it was an excuse for them to, to go and crack down but realistically there you know even now to this day we don't have a definition for like an international definition for terrorism uh and that's mm. it doesn't exist unfortunately because if that was there you could say okay well this group is not a terrorist group so um you know uh it was just kind of like oh you know it was kind of a term that was put into place it wasn't um yeah very well defined and so that kind of gave other totalitarian countries like china excuses to crack down on certain people under the guise of terrorism well 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 china watches what the west has done mm -hmm. like in terms of colonization because you know again not to go on a tangent but what they're doing in africa is pretty like whoa like it's it's scary and and then when when people question them they're like well what did you do you know yeah. and and, yeah. and again there's that there's that deflection but of this course. is a this is a contemporary reality that we need to we need to see. Like, yeah, know. it's a real reality that people need to be uh, waken up to. Um, yeah, China isn't a um, you know I think 30, 40 years ago is uh, you know still developing uh, very much a um, you know they weren't on the global stage. They weren't a huge major player, right? Right. That has changed part and part through Western investments. So a lot of you know a lot of money went into China with the hope of making it a democratic force in the world. People thought, okay, if we invest in China, we we you know have cultural exchanges, we do a lot more uh, business together. They'll change, you know, the communism will will stop, or they'll see the democratic ways and um, it'll change. We'll, but, we'll pray the red away. Yeah, in essence, or we'll pay the right away, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So they're putting a lot of money into it. Um, that, that just didn't work that way. And instead, it's gone the whole other end where China is now a lot more aggressive. They have what's called a tiger diplomacy, right? So, or dragon diplomacy, you know, the aggressive posturing and, um, you know, not um, being diplomatic. So they're being aggressive. They want to show, okay, we are back or because China is a really old, it goes back centuries, right? And um, they have their own histories of colonialism and uh, their own kind of internal uh, history. And they feel, I think, it's important for them to show that China is, uh, you know, back as a powerhouse and, you know, to extend that influence. So we're all seeing that in Africa. People need to be aware that, um, you know, Chinese debt, it's not as, um, as friendly as it seems. There are clauses and there are, uh, you know, how they treat people. So if they're able to, run concentration camps in you know inside their own country like you know to their you know to their kind of we, we are autonomous but technically we are considered still by them as citizens of china right, right. um 
you have to question what they can do in Africa or other countries where they, uh, you know, again, they might not see people as human. They might see them as less than or a means to something, right? Um, and, and again, just to draw a, a parallel, and I apologize for this, but the the concentration camps during the Nazi Germany regime were mostly in Poland, not in Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Not in their own nation. And, and, and China showing, like you're saying, this is what they're doing in their own country. What could they yes. be doing outside of their country? I mean, it's just, there's no accountability, right? So when you have a country that has no accountability, um, there are no limits oh, yeah. as to what can be done, right? Um, that's a problem where I think most other countries, they have some sort of level of accountability. There is, you know, um, you know, you have opposition parties. Even with the people. Have, yeah, or the people will stand up, right? But yeah. you don't see that in China. And I, that's just part of the cultural element too. Um, it's very much keep your head down, do as you're told, uh, collective like mentality. Um, so you won't see internal protests. Like even in China, when you you have things as horrible as the um, population bomb that's going off right now, but that's because of the one-child policy. When that was happening, people didn't speak out about that. They just, you know, they didn't like what was happening, but they went along with it, right? So you had, a, you know, forced abortion sterilizations going on at that time for their own uh, Han Chinese and people have regret about it. Like there's documentaries out there on, you know, people who did these, um, you know, doctors who did the kind of procedures and, you know, they have incredible regret and they try to make up for it afterwards by, you know, being midwives or trying to serve uh, or try to erase those sins. But, but, you know, if something like that can't be stopped, like it, there's just the cultural difference or the powerhouse that's the way that it's set up is such that if you keep your head down, you're going to prosper. Um, if you keep your head up, you know, you get called in that sense, right? It's a very uh, brutally yeah. um, it's 1984. Yeah. yeah, 1984 at, at its worst, you know, yes. <laughs> um, because they have the technological capabilities to make that into possible. Um, so you see that with AI, right? Like imagine having a thousand cameras, you have to hire a thousand people to monitor those cameras. Now you have AI. Um, They're exporting tools to other, you know, authoritarian regimes. So to developing um, software and the AI tools in-house to monitor phones, to monitor surveillance cameras, uh, to track uh, movement. And then they're selling this as a package as a whole. There's a whole industry now in China, in our region, in East Turkestan. They've tested it on us. They have the blueprint to then export that to other um, authoritarian or totalitarian regimes around the world. And that should scare people because it's like that has a global implication, right? Um, it can destabilize other countries. So, um, or, 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 demo- or even apps, right? Because uh, TikTok, it w- isn't TikTok. Yeah, TikTok Chinese is like a. I mean, that's, like that's but whatever. But I'm just it, saying, like, yeah. there are extensions, right? Yeah, of course. Because, like, if you have an app um, that's developed by the Chinese government. And as much as, you know, the company will deny, you know, we don't, we're not, you know, the Chinese government doesn't have access to our data set. Any company that's incorporated in China will have communist party members in their, you know, their directorship or the ownership. They're going to have communist Chinese party members and they have, they've sworn loyalty to the state. Um, So when you have any company in China, it's basically a state enterprise. Like as much as they flout independence, you see that with Alibaba, like, you know, they, took away um like the guy disappeared for a little bit of time right and he was the ceo of like the largest company in china like alibaba right um and he basically went away just you know because he made a statement on so jack ma the founder 
he made a statement about the uh, Chinese regulatory authorities. He's like, okay, this is, you know, they're being overly harsh or something along the lines of, you know, making them not look good. And he disappeared for a while, like, just like disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. That sounds very Stalinist, right? Yeah, he's one of the richest people on earth. And, you know, if it was to show basically to people in China, get in line, like, you don't mess with If if we're doing this to him. Yeah. You know, wow. Right? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it just shows you like how totalitarian that, you know, the regime is and to the extent that they will do whatever they want. And anybody who challenges any part of that power dynamic is seen as a threat. And 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 I'm always kind of thinking, like, what are the extensions of this, you know, down down time? And, and, and again, not to go off on a tangent, but it's like, who do you want to have your information? Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates or China? Right. They're all kind of getting to get your information. I mean, this is the other aspect of it. Like you, you'll see apps in, let's say, Western countries. It's, you know, you'll have a Facebook, you'll have a, mm-hmm. um, a, a YouTube or something, right? In China, you what you're seeing is there's just one app like WeChat that controls everything, right? right? It's a YouTube, it's a, a PayPal, no eBay, choice. all in one. Um, yes, that's convenient, but it also means that it's very easy to see your life. And the, yeah. the, I think what's even more it's an amalgamation, is now, right? Yeah, it's an amalgamation. And then what's even more worrying is they have a digital currency. So, you know, they can, they have basically, if you watch Black Mirror, uh, yeah. they have a social rating app, right? So it's, if you're not considered a nice Chinese citizen or you're not being a good member of the party, you suddenly have a harder time getting loans, getting access to transportation, not being able to travel. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things that go in there. So, uh, 1984 is made possible by the technology that they've developed. So it's right. you know before it would be kind of like okay, you have to invest in the infrastructure and the kind of human capital to make that possible, right? To monitor people, to suppress them. But now you have with artificial intelligence, with digital payment technologies, with you know modern advances, it's become a reality. Now, um, and, and, and this is the other thing that I heard. I mean, we're, we're approaching, you know, there's a shift from the power of it being in the West to the East. I mean, we're approaching <laughs> the Asian century. Now, the, the Uyghur people, are they, are they you know, are, are they seen as like, are they as technological or, or are they sort of a little bit more in their culture? Are they a little bit more against it? Like, how does that, does that how does that tie into this? I mean... <laughs> We'll see. I mean, there's a lot of conjecture about like Asian powerhouses and, and so forth and like China becoming a dominant force. Um, ultimately, I think a country can only go so far if it's isolated, right? Um, there's a whole Cold War, Soviet Russia, US. Yes. Um, you can only go so far if you contain a country. And I think that needs to be the strategy around the world is you need to contain China. Um, so containment includes, you know, the South China Sea, not allowing them to take over places like Taiwan. Or to or claim, yeah, to go and be an aggressive, um, you know, uh, country that takes over land or you know goes on the offensive. You try to contain their influence, whether that be containments on financial access, right? Uh, containments on trade, uh, information export. You know, China is a known aggressor in terms of stealing patents, uh, technologies, uh, intellectual property, right. holding them accountable to that aspect. If you're able to contain that, um, you can you can limit what they can do initially, right? So. Sanctions, sanctions work. You know, you contain a country. If they don't trade, then you know China has its own problems. They have a aging population. Um, they don't have a pension fund that's 
you know, sustainable. Um, they have to make some hard decisions there as well. Um, there's a few things that are not going in terms of China's way that they have to solve. Um, but uh, I think it's more important for nations to wake up that are you going to be, are you going to look away from the fact that there is a genocide going on? Um, you know, like that's, that's the question. People need to really encourage their leadership in countries to make those hard decisions and move away from Chinese um, you know, state companies who are profiting off of, of genocide and forced labor, right? Um, if that doesn't happen, then, you know, what's, it's basically giving them a blessing to go and do whatever yeah. they want. You're, you're allowing them, you could say all the, all the, you know, all the rich words that you want, but unless you have some sort of consequence behind this, things will not change. That's it. There has to be some consequence. And, you know, for China, uh, there's been international pressure, you know, right. um, stop doing declarations. This. Yeah, stop doing it. Uh, or like, we're not happy with what you're doing, or we don't like the human rights situation in China. You know, multiple state visits, they will always bring up human rights and, um, you know, the need to improve that. But that's soft diplomatic action. What needs to happen is concrete policy, right? Yeah. So policy development. And um, it's in the interest, I think, in terms of the whole world, in terms of not having a totalitarian country, you know, that basically becomes a powerhouse because that could be a very dark, dark time for the world. Well, and, and the other problem is, you know, the amount of production that happens for the West in China. Like, for example, the iPhone, it's developed in California, mm -hmm. but it's produced in, you know, China or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Foxconn, uh, you know, you know, you have companies that rely on Chinese supply chains. But the thing is with, with China, uh, they the reason also why they've done the One Belt Road Initiative is basically they realize they have an aging workforce. So you can't really maintain your cheap labor rates. Now it's actually cheaper to get stuff made in, in Vietnam or in the Philippines than it is in China. Like the labor costs are higher now in China because there's a certain, okay. once you have a, you know, yeah. a, um, you know, you have a modern day middle class, um, they have expensive tastes, they have higher expectations for wages. Um, so people who, you know, you can pay, you know, several dollars, you know, a few dollars an hour, you have less and less of those people who are willing to, when they see the opportunities in, in the cities to get paid a lot more and to be part of that modern middle class. Um, so China has an issue where they're not able to find cheap labor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, temporary solution there is using Uyghurs and other minorities yes. as a um as a way to do that uh they're you know they're getting people even from countries like vietnam class. and you know yeah. philippines to come and live in china and to be that cheap labor base but um it, their goal there is the long term for the country is i think the one belt and road initiative as you mentioned it's it's a way for them to to grow beyond just being a cheap manufacturing um a place for the world right it's mm -hmm. changed um so I think countries will realize that there are other other opportunities. Um, I think there's also a whole mechanism right now. I think countries like the U.S. kind of are looking at internal domestic production as well, which is healthy. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, people need to wake up that, you know, if, if, when you think in history classes, how did how did the rest of the world react to the Holocaust? Um, the same thing has to be asked now. It's you know, would you? When you look back at history, do you think, um, like, do you blame people for not acting? Well, what's happening right now is the exact same thing. You know, if there is genocide. You know there is a genocide. Like, if you look into me, there hasn't been a lack of media coverage either. People have, you know, New York Times, politicians have spoken about it. Uh, there have been several articles published, videos. Uh, journalists have gone to 
uh, East Turkestan, I think Vox did a, uh, or Vox or a Vice. One of them, they basically went and they sent a journalist, uh, I think this was one or, this is before pandemic, obviously, but, um, you know, people have been there, they know what's going on. It's, there's just like negligence in terms of like awareness as well, I think, in terms yes. of our policymakers and our, and our leaders in terms of that. Well, and, and, and again, yeah, I mean, like, we, we can learn so much from history and the same thing that like we knew that this was happening. America knew what was happening in, in Germany and in Poland, but because it didn't align with their interests, they didn't act. And as a consequence, yeah, I think as a consequence, there's, you know, yeah, things were I mean, made better. There, there's, there, there, there is a question of like, there, the one thing that annoys people and annoys me personally is, not listening to uh, survivors of concentration camps, right? Like their testimonies are taken as biased or, oh, there's no way on earth that they would be torturing and killing people or, um, you know, forced sterilizations and, you know, organ harvesting. That's just, it sounds too uh, surreal, right? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like something that would happen in reality, but. Which is, is further happening. traumatizing, by the way. Yes, absolutely. It person. is further traumatizing because it's also yeah. very frustrating because if you don't listen to the people who have survived and been able to escape, and then make it to like a country like the U.S. and or Canada and give testimony, and that's not taken seriously because oh, you know, you're making things up or you're exaggerating uh, what's happening. It was a really a blessing in disguise to get internal government leaks because that just was a nail in the coffin. It was like Verifies you know what you didn't it. listen to us. Here's the papers from the Chinese government itself. Yes, that proves, as a matter of fact, that. This is indeed what's happening. And hey, this is on a bigger scale than you could have imagined either, right? So um, that was so, part of the frustration. That's why it also took three years because 2018, people already knew it was happening. There are testimonies out there. People have you know, talked about this, but it took another three years for governments to go, oh, okay, you know what? This is actually real. We're going to take some action on this. How many, how many millions of, like the thing that like breaks my heart on a personal level is children being separated from their their families like i i don't care who you are what you are that's part of the human species is to be raised by a caregiver right anytime you have children being separated from their families to me that's it's not even it's not even that those families um like that you know that there isn't the parents are uh, have passed away or there's been some sort of war these are parents are alive these are functional families um and they're having their children separated and um the scale of it goes, it, it, it is quite concerning because as you, you know, the initial estimates were between one or two million, right? So this is based on satellite photos and kind of conjecture on that basis. They project, you know, accordingly. So you have this many camps, each camp can hold as many people, or you look at how many villages um, or towns have had people missing. You can kind of extrapolate from there, right? Like if and they're, in a building, town, they're building this machine up too. Yes. And they haven't stopped. They haven't slowed down either. They're, these camps are still being built, which is... Yes, showing you, know, you the, the trajectory. Slowing down, right? yeah. And so, you know, those were the initial estimates, like one or two million. That was established on in research, right? So Adrian Zenz and some of these researchers who are um, studying this particular area of field, field topic, they said, okay, one or two million. But internally within the Uyghur diaspora and the community, people knew, okay, this is definitely more than a million. There's several million people who are locked up. And this was vindicated by, um, I think it was the Chinese government. They leaked, uh, well, they didn't leak, they published it as a white paper to say, okay, look, we've reformed. Uh, I think they were saying well, around 1.1 million people per year um, since 2015. So you're looking at more north of 6 million people who've gone through 
the concentration forced forced labor camp uh, kind of uh, scheme or the, or the whole system that they've developed, right? Um, and if you look at Chinese census data, it was in 2017, they said there was 11 million Uyghurs. You know, we dispute that. We say there's more 25 to 30 million, but, you know, 6 million of that, that's more than half the population, right? right. And that's a lot of people. Um, yeah. six, I mean, 6 million that. is, we, we say things like 6 million because we want to make that number smaller. 6 million human beings. Yeah. I mean, six that's million, that's uh, what, like a fifth of Canada? Like, yeah. <laughs> certain provinces are like, it's imagine if your province had disappeared like that, right? Everybody in the province, uh, um, I think it was like, it is ridiculous. Um, yeah. The numbers tend to, like you said, it tends to numb. Yes. Oh, okay, it's only six million, right? But then it's yeah. like, yes, actually, six million people, that's a lot. Like, of I, like, like I, live in, I live in Vancouver. Right. And and rush hour is insane, and I think there's only like I don't know three hundred thousand people here, right? Just to mm. to illustrate how massive six million people is, and and that's why I think it's important that we talk about okay, so we can, what what can we do? What can people be doing, listeners to yeah. this? Because because we can do something. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, you know, there's things that you can do locally. Um, you know, on a very basic level, is spread awareness. Um, you know, we are competing with a propaganda machine that has billions of dollars and is able to operate in Western countries without restrictions. Mm-hmm. I think only Australia is the one country that has a foreign interference law that prevents, um, you know, kind of foreign influence, basically. You can, like, it's annoying. It's beyond me how, like, if I go on my feed uh, on my phone, I'll get CGT, uh, what's like the Chinese state propaganda uh, news outlet. CGTV or CGTN or, you know, it's the, I forget the acronym for it, but um, they will have videos on my feed. And even if I say, okay, report this, or, you know, I don't want to see it, they'll mm. still pop up. And it's like a, like a it's poison paid, algorithm. Yeah, it's paid advertising. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, they're able to, you're allowing in your own country. So in Canada, you're able to have a Chinese state propaganda machine yes. spread its influence. In your country, it's just like, what 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 are the what are the ones that are the, that like that are affiliated to these Chinese propagandistic uh, outlets? So, what the big one that I know is CGTN. CGTN, um, yeah. So it's a Beijing-owned China Central Television Network, and they will have a YouTube influence, and so they're able to get into Canadian uh, media consumers, right? Um, you also have like Confucius Institutes here in, in Canada. Basically, they're um, They come in the guise of like cultural and heritage, you know, activities or civic activities, but realistically, it's propaganda or um, it's a way for the Chinese state to increase its influence uh, overseas. Um, So you have that, but I think the media impact of it is is huge um, because they will, you know, Twitter bots, this was a huge thing, like Facebook and Twitter recently cracked down on them, but uh, there are millions of bots out there that are written by or controlled by, uh, you know, Beijing and, you know, they have their virtual warriors go online and, you know, yeah. troll you or, yeah. uh, you know, intimidate you or harass you. Uh, it's not uncommon. Um, but I think definitely countries need to step up in terms of the influence factor because what we've seen with social media and I think information warfare is that even if something is super untrue, the more you see it, the more likely you are to believe it. It's just the human psychology. Unfortunately, that's how it works. 
Yeah. So if you see a patterns, false, patterns, false right? fact or something, and you see that repeatedly, you start to okay. Like if you're at first, even if you strongly deny, it, like it is absolutely horrible, it's wrong, you know, it's this is total BS, it's a lie. But you start seeing that more and more and more. The more times you see that unconsciously, you are validated by that. It's it's changing how you think in that sense. And just so how you choose information is really important too. So. Um, that's why social media is such a powerful tool because you can have people advertise directly to you and, you know, change your political beliefs, how you see news or, you know, you can have multiple, for example, you can have somebody who shares a CGT, uh, you know, and a Chinese state sponsored article, right. About how Canada is over-exaggerating genocide, that Facebook piece, right. You can have a fake account post, you know, Oh, I love China. Like they're amazing. They're doing absolutely everything correct. You know, these concentration camps are justified. And you can have a piece by the CBC that goes about like, or the New York Times, and those are all processed the same in terms of how you take that information in. It's all seen as news, but it's, hey, this is actually that's opinion, persuasion. propaganda, and you only have one factual person. So that's that's wow. the way that it is. That's how manipulation works um, in its essence. And, and and I think that there's a degree of consumability, right? Like these these ones that are so readily available, they're easier to consume. Whereas the factual one, you're like, well, I don't want yeah, to read. Yeah, that. that's it. I mean, who's are you going to go read through this forty page report from Parliament, or are you going to yeah. read like watch a thirty a second bit. video, exactly yeah, from the Chinese state propaganda television network that put out a hit piece? Um, I think the most example, the the best example of this was um, they basically put together a musical. Uh, to yes, the Chinese government put together a musical to paint what's happening at the genocide camps as the, the the concentration camps as a oh look they're dancing they're happy like over doing oh. it right um which is meanwhile there's there's guns pointed behind the cameras you know what I mean well, not even guns like no, you know, no, hope. not actually but but like there's the fear behind it like that's yeah, I why mean, they're there's fear obviously but, like they put it together a musical to show okay look we're having you know it's everything's fine don't worry about it go it's back and you know ignore it um it, it was funny because like in their box offices it, it tanked because nobody's going to watch that internally in China um, right. but it's something that they're doing and and the whole idea there again is is manipulation for um you know, for image, right? So they're able to spend money and they're able to, when you have money, you can buy attention. And, the, you know, the more attention they control, the more they control the narrative. Um, right. So if you, you know, okay, you might not be able to influence, let's say the US as much, but you can influence, um, you know, there's like more than a hundred countries around the world. Not all of them have robust, uh, you know, systems for journalism or in integrity, or, you know, you can manipulate certain uh, European countries. You can manipulate certain countries in Africa. You can manipulate certain countries in Southeast Asia. And if you can, you know, change the narrative there and say, okay, this is not, this is not a human rights issue. This is just the U.S. painting us as a, uh, as a demagogue or uh, as a, uh, as a, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's a diplomatic thing or, you know, they're just, you know, trying to paint us as the evil person, uh, you know, or they're able to change the narrative. The the other thing too, that, that you had me thinking about, I mean, just in the terms of how chat, uh, you know, groups work and feeds and threads and stuff. But but I think that, like you say, they're sowing a lot of seeds of sort of uh, uh, distrust in, in yeah. you know, own distrust. Western governments, right? Distrust in governments, I mean, but uh, also... Because it's, it's in... distracting, right? Yeah, it's distraction-oriented, exactly, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that the problems that are happening in the West aren't legitimate. They are. But also, it's like, if you can keep 
us butting heads within ourselves, it's yeah. weakening ourselves. Yeah, I mean, right? it, it, that's exactly what they want to do. I mean, can they overthrow a Western government? Probably not. That's, you know, democratic <laughs> yeah. systems are pretty strong. Um, yeah. But can they create internal, like, can they amplify, right? Can they yes. amplify um, divisions and yes. create internal turmoil? And that that's is happening. essentially what, you know, intelligence operations are, is they will try to create as much you know, chaos as possible and then show, look, we're more stable than de democratic countries. Yes. And kind of use it as justification for their own regime being totalitarian. Yeah. Because they liquidate any opposition in non-democratic countries, right? Part of it, I think it's, I think it's more just chaos. They'll throw in yes. mis miscommunication. They'll throw in, you know, they'll try to alienate people within their own country. Like, you know, if you, yes. I think a good example is the U.S., you know, Democrat versus Republican, like they're very much, like super aggressive and like super anti each other, you know, they, they just cannot have a conversation anymore. Um, and that's helped with social media and like influencing. And that's, you know, how you go, I mean, you, we're going off tangents here, but like the US whole yes. Russian influence factor, that was it. You know, yeah. could they, you know, manipulate the entire election that way? No, but they can make enough of a difference to create a bit of chaos there, right? So mm -hmm. leaking emails or, you know, doing things like that where, you know, you're kind of exposing the corruptness of the system, right? Um, they try to create as much chaos as possible. And Canada needs to be aware. Like, I think the fact is that it's shocking that people don't listen to the intelligence system that we have in place in Canada. So they don't listen to CSIS or the RCMP or our, you know, people who are in charge of our intelligence apparatus right. who are saying, look, we have to focus on China because they are, you know, they're working against us. There's a lot of things that are happening right now that we should be aware of. We need to take action, but politicians are for whatever reason, either they're not educated on it or Hands they're actively off, yeah. avoiding. They're like, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, if your own intelligence, like head of intelligence or, you know, for your, if these institutions that you put in place, if they're telling you, hey, you need to be careful, we need to take action and you're not they're taking that action, that, that's problematic. Um, so that goes from like, you know, if global affairs tells our, you know, prime minister to do something and they're not acting on it, all global affairs can do, and these are civil servants, they can provide information. The decisions are made at the end of the day by you know, our government leadership, so prime minister's office, the cabinet ministers, um, parliament, right? They have to, you know, receive the information, understand it, and then take action on it. And that's what um, ultimately is what we're doing now is, you know, we have the recognition of genocide. And luckily that was passed with the help of the opposition, right? So uh, kind of the opposition drove that momentum. It was a conservative uh, bill. Uh, and, you know, you can't vote against genocide right so it's basically saying like yes. you're complicit this is, so yeah. it forced the hand of um you know the government to basically step into it and the cabinet didn't vote they abstained right so the cabinet ministers and the prime minister they didn't show up for the vote um but the rest of the parliament did and they voted overwhelmingly in favor um of recognition of genocide so you have that aspect of it um but now you know, we have to see action. So we're looking at changing the status quo. You know, we want to see better supply chain controls. You know, you shouldn't be sending um, AI or exporting AI technology to China because you know they're going to be using this for uh, for suppression. Um, the same thing goes for importing goods. So if you're importing cotton or tomatoes or, uh, you know, uh, electronics, or I think now the more controversial things are like solar panels, for example, and you know that they're uh, being made in East Turkestan with forced labor, uh, well, you know, at least at the very least, it should be on the onus on the companies to prove that their supply chains are clean before it enters Canada's uh, domestic market. Um, so, you know, stopping business as usual and taking into consideration that yes, 
the government has acknowledged genocide. There is genocide happening. Companies need to change and not be complicit in that. You know, that's one. The other aspect of it is you, we have a lot of Uyghurs who are um, stuck in countries like uh, Thailand or in, you know, even Middle Eastern countries. Um, and they are in a very precarious situation because UNHCR, um, they'll file an application with them to be a refugee. But, you know, in some instances, there's a, a fear of complicity with the UNHCR. Like, how independent are they? Like, how can they, could they actually help you, right? So there's a bit of distrust there. Um, but they need places where they can come and live safely. So, uh, you know, we want to offer them a way to, if they have already left China and they're able to get out, um, to go from these countries that are not, um, well, let's say they don't have a backbone to stand up to China, right? They're not willing yeah. to do that. They're, they would just extradite people back, basically. That's what happens. To give them a route to get to Canada, or, you know, so that they can settle here uh, where they know that the Canadian government is not going to basically extradite them back to China, right? Yeah. So we're, we're working on those two fronts, basically, with um, uh, with the government to, you know, advocate uh, on behalf of Uyghurs around the world to make those things possible. Um, and it's a slow, it's a slow process, but uh, you know, it's something that needs to be done. And I think just Canada needs to wake up in terms of just general like threat matrix that yes, China and not only do they not share our values, um, so mm. they they stand against you know they they're not against they stand every, <laughs> their position is basically anti-Canadian. You know, they don't yeah. like human rights, no expressions. Uh, you know, they don't like multiculturalism. There's a whole bunch of other factors that. You know, they don't, they basically, they locked up to, uh, you know, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor arbitrarily, um, right? So it, that should send a message to Canadians uh, abroad as well, is that if you go to China, well, like, you could just be arrested. With well, the, I'm not you know, going to China after this. I, I, I would, I, I think, I would think that most Canadians wouldn't do that either because they just realize that, okay, you know, we can be used at bargaining chips for, you know, yeah. Just like well, that, right? They don't. They don't care. They, they they don't play by the rules, right? I mean, yeah, they don't play by the rules. Exactly. That's it. They're not. You're shaping up to be, uh, you know, like they're they're a threat. They are, and that's what Canadians need to be wake up to is that the Chinese government, again, not the Chinese people, right? So we have a lot of uh, yes, Chinese yes, residents yes, and all that, yeah. and and and, you know, and, and it, I want to make that clear. This is the Chinese Sinophobia government. Sinophobia is a is a thing, yeah. but um, yeah. you know, it's against the government. So it's it's to realize that there is a government that's working actively against your interests. Um, that needs to be realized. And so, you know, you're looking at espionage. You had a case at McGill University, a professor was arrested for espionage, right? Like things like that happen where you start questioning, okay, well, how much, um, like, how do you vet, you know, you know, people who are coming into the country uh, under the guise of academia? Like, are they really there for academia? Or are they, you know, working on, like in the US, there are restrictions on graduate students, I believe, um, yes. from over there. You know, you can work on, there's restrictions in place. I think the same thing was echoed here by our, uh, former head of intelligence for, I think, were CSIS, and they were saying that, look, we need to look into our own systems, right? Um, because there is a factor of concern with espionage we have to and information transfer and uh, yeah. all of that. Um, and the fact that we still have Huawei in, in operating in Canada, an entity that is blacklisted in the U.S., like you literally cannot do business with Huawei in the U.S. And even if you're a Canadian company and you want to do business in the U.S., let's say with the government, you have to basically sign a special declaration that says, your product and or services are independent of Huawei, right? right? So they don't want you to use any Huawei chips or phones or tablets or accounts or anything, whatever you're using when you're doing business with the U.S. government, right? So they go to that extent. We still have them in Canada. They're, 
they're one of the biggest funders of research in Canada for, uh, you know, they sponsor a lot of, uh, you know, electrical engineering universities. They have a lot of programs with Huawei. I think it was like $15 million that they spent uh, annually on uh, supporting research, right? And there's, they have headquarters here. They have, you know, their big employer too. Um, it's it, it's really mind-boggling. You know, a company that is actively involved in genocide, and they're banned in the U.S. Like, but they're still active here in Canada. And it's one of the only out of the Five Eyes countries, um, Canada is one of the only ones that hasn't spoken up on or dealt with the Huawei issue. Didn't um, we arrest the the CEO or something? Yeah, like but that was on the request of U.S. authorities, right? right it's not like right, something that right, Canada right. took preactive as steps. Yeah. We that. we are very like sometimes we can be too in the middle. Like we ha- we do have to pick sides, and this is and something we have to pick a side on. Yes, there, there there really is no like middle ground on here, and especially yeah. if you're taking the middle ground, it's one thing. If China was like a neutral to Canadian um, affairs, but or not committing genocide. Well, yeah, not committing genocide or arresting like Canadian citizens, like that would be different. And that's another fact. Like people are surprised with Michael Spavar, Michael um, uh, uh, Kovrick, but uh, Hussein Chalil, he is a Canadian citizen who's been arrested for just about like 14 years, 15 years now in in China. And he wasn't even in China; like he was in a, uh, a neighboring country. He was extradited uh, and sentenced in China, basically. So China issued a warrant. They got the guy. They got Hussein Chalil, a Canadian citizen, right? So, and he was where did, they, where did they get him? Uh, let me pull it out. I don't want to, uh, you know, miss misquote it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but yeah. he was basically he, he's a Canadian citizen, um, and he was arrested in Uzbekistan and then extradited extradited to China. Um, That's insane. What does that tell you? This is back in two thousand six, too, right? So this yeah. is uh, Harper era, um, and Canada. You know, they did what they. Well, they they basically got the initial initially he was sentenced to death, um, and with uh, Canadian um, kind of pressure, they decided like, okay, we'll do a life sentence, or and then they reduced it a bit and so forth. Um, but he, he was a Canadian citizen who traveled not even to China but Uzbekistan and was arrested arbitrarily. Um, so there was a precedence for Michael Kovrick and Michael Spavor. Um, I think the government, you know, had they acted at the time more strongly. Um, it would have sent a stronger message. Maybe that would prevent right. Michael Spav or Michael Kovrick from being detained. And right. funnily enough, there was a Globe and, Globe and Mail article from you know that time where they said, okay, the government needs to set a strong example to make sure that this doesn't happen again in the and future. And it did happen. So it, it, it kind of questions go into, well, how strongly did the government yeah. object in the first place? Right? And, they, so, and they see Canada and we see how we respond to this in 2006 right and they see oh you know what they're not so tough we can get away with this and they have right? for well it's been 2006 so 15 years now right so hussein oh, chalil is still in china he is a canadian citizen you know we look at michael kovic michael spavor um but people tend to forget there's a, there's another canadian who has been yes. forgotten to an extent um by the government in terms of uh, you know his case, right? Like, why don't we talk about Hussein Chilil more, as just as we do with Michael Kovic and Michael Spauer? Because I mean, they're all Canadian citizens who've been adre- arrested arbitrarily. Um, you know, so there's that fact, and I think, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of leadership now taking action for whatever reason. They've been slow, you know, kind of taking a middle stance, um, but you know, public polls support taking stronger action too. I think was. 
uh, recent Nick Nano's poll, uh, they looked at it and they, you know, I think it was 40% of people support decreasing trade with China, right? So mm. yeah, that means we're going to stop. I mean, that's how you do China. it nowadays. Yeah. That's how you do it, right? In the 21st century, it's because war, oh, that doesn't work. We'll just destroy each other, right? Mutually. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a negative, but, yeah. um, you know, at the very least, you can stop giving them money. Um, Exactly. And supporting their economy, right? Economic so, embargoes is is yeah. That's and how look, this world works. Like China needs Western countries. Um, they need yes. other countries. They have, you know, they need to import agriculture. They need to import, uh, you know, wheat. You know, these kind of like resources as well to feed their own people. And Canada, well, you know, we have a very strong agricultural economy. And like, so if it's not like China can be like, oh, we're not going to work with you anymore. They have shortages, and you know, they're kind of reliant on. Uh, other countries as well so sorry this is kind of like this this is this does tie into everything so canada Mm. says we will not trade with china at all (laughs) game over right what would the what would the implications be for us like how would we be hard pressed would would wood go up would technology go up taxes like how what would the what do you think that's a huge question for you i think look i think Canada has smart about um, setting out strategic trade alliances. So yeah. in the past few years, like Chris, Chris, Chris um, uh, you know, Minister Freeland, I think she's our deputy prime minister, right? Um, she has been influential in setting up CETA. So like, you know, uh, trade agreements with uh, Europe, but also with, um, with Pacific Asia. I think there's a specific term for it, but um, there are several trade agreements that exist around the world. And I think what needs to happen is we need to strengthen trade with other countries. Yes. So you have more opportunities to then, you know, go away from China, right? Can you overnight just turn off, you know, Chinese imports? It's going to be tough, right? Like it's a massive shock. Um, but if you have suddenly opportunities to work with other countries in terms of trade, um, you will minimize that shock and you will start to realize that there are alternatives that exist. And you'll be bolstering those other countries up too. That's the other Absolutely. thing that we have to see, yeah. right? Because That's because it. really what's happening is just like the monoculture in, in China is we're sort of just, we keep growing this sort of... Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but this one sort of unit, when if we can be smart about it, we can kind of build everybody up a little bit, right? Yeah, that's it. So that kind it's of equity, diversification. Economic it's equity. Yes. Economic diversification in that sense. You're supporting other countries. So maybe that's Latin America, that's you know, um, yes. Southeast Asia, Europe. Um, and it's just diversifying because then you're not um, you know, certainly liable to, let's say, China, right? You can speak out because you know you have alternatives um, in terms of trade. And I think that's the same thing in the U.S. They're spending a lot of money on semiconductors, you know, bringing production mm. to China, from away from China to the U.S. as an alternative. And I think that's people are realized that with the pandemic, too, with supply chain disruptions, that globalization, yes, there are some benefits to it. But you know, certain industries or certain key technologies, you want to be able to make those yourself. Like I think Canada really regretted not having its own vaccine manufacturing capabilities, right? Um, it's not, not, not investing yeah. in pharmaceut- pharmaceuticals. Uh, and uh, we're starting to see that now where certain companies are making the vaccines here in Canada or they're starting to build facilities to do that. You know, there's certain other things for, for I think, discussion needs to happen in the, in the government level of, okay, we know yes. what key technologies or what key imports could be like absolutely not get from anywhere else. And then how do we solve that problem? Because when the cards, when the chips fall, we need to be able to take care of ourselves, you know, by ourselves. I think a lot of countries have realized that where it's like, okay, if China suddenly starts to decide to stop sending you masks, well, 
that's what happened. You know, you had China deciding, okay, you know, we're not going to give anybody any masks right now. We're just going to do it ourselves. We're going to use it ourselves. And Canada was like, Canada at the beginning of the pandemic sent China tons of medical equipment, like literally tons, right? In terms of ventilators, masks, PPE. And I think that was like a a gesture on the Canadian government's, uh, you know, approach to maybe, you know, it's a good faith kind of thing, but that was never reciprocated. It just wasn't because we have to, we have to learn from that. I mean, like, Absolutely. again, again, I, I want to clarify that this is the Chinese government that I'm against. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, a gov- it's a government thing because the people are as much as victims of the government there. I mean, realistically. Exactly. Right. So uh, we have, I have, you know, Canadian Chinese, uh, well, I have friends who, you know, are in Montreal or across Canada and, you know, they very much show their sympathies and, you know, they, you know, show their support, but they do that secretly because, you know, they know that they are their families overseas uh, in China if they found out, you know, or there could be repercussions for them, right? So, um, and I think that's, it's just, uh, you know, it shows that they're all being repressed, right? It's, yeah. uh, there is no freedom to dissent. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are not happy with the Chinese government who are in Canada, right? So Canadian Chinese or, um, you know, Chinese expats and that's, or immigrants who uh, wouldn't agree with what's happening in China. But, um, you know, Chinese influence from the government's perspective goes far. Yeah. yeah, it goes far. I mean, it goes far as like in Montreal, there was an event with um, the World Uyghur Congress. So yeah, Dolkan Issa, who is one of the very prominent activists and um, kind of a global uh, uh, figurehead for the Uyghurs came to Montreal, did an event at Concordia University, and basically the Chinese embassy tried to influence the mayor's office to cancel the event um, to that to that extent. And I, I, I was surprised there wasn't a bigger backlash against that because, you know, the mayor's office just, you know, brushed it off. But, you know, you have an embassy telling somebody... Dude, that's cold no war, man. <laughs> with, with no like yeah. you know diplomatic language straight up you know don't have this event right like yeah that's yeah. insane that's a level I'm, of influence that's you know like that can happen in canada right so this is like 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 i i, I questioned the legitimacy of how real the cold war was in terms of you know our perceived threat of of communist satellite nations and stuff like that but anyways this seems like whoa this is very real Oh, it's very real. This it's just, threat uh, is very real. There, there's a quote um, uh, from Chris Voss, a former FBI negotiator, in terms of negotiations. He says, you know, uh, the most dangerous negotiation is the one that you're not aware of, right? Like, or that you aren't aware that you're in. Um, so in the same sense that, you know, the yes. most dangerous conflict is one where you don't know that you're actually in a conflict, right? So, it's a hidden war. This is a hidden war. In, 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 in different ways, yes, it, it really, really is because you have, you know, one state who's actively trying to undermine you or, you know, limit your, uh, you know, kind of so chaos and mess with your, uh, you know, uh, country as it is, right? And if you're not aware of that and you're not actually working against it, well, that's really dangerous. Um, because if you're aware of the problem, you're going to be working to solving that, right? So you're going to work yeah. towards putting in, you know, foreign uh, influence and measures to restrict that from happening. You're going to make sure that, you know, uh, you're, 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 you know, boosting up your own systems to counteract um, kind of the negative effects of what's trying to do, right? So, uh, you know, even I think there was recent reports of like, uh, you know, non well state actors trying to hack into uh, Canada's like vaccine data, um, right? So. 
or even the fact that like Canada was supposed to develop a vaccine with China at the beginning of the pandemic, they were working together um, to have this program where they would co-develop the vaccine, the Chinese Sinopharm uh, vaccine that they had. And that fell through, you know, because the Chinese government wouldn't let them, that company export data out to Canada, right? So it, at every stage, Canada has tried to be nice to the Chinese yeah. government. It's always yeah. been rebuked, but we keep we've been, trying. We've been resting on our laurels here. Like truly, you know, like, ah, oh, it's know, okay. Yeah, but you know, but this is right, not, but... we're not playing with an equal partner here. We're playing. Oh, you know, absolutely not. So that's where, they, where it's confusing for us as well as us yeah. Uyghur Canadians. It's like, okay, why does Canada yeah. go Fool so me once. far to kowtow and bow to a country, They're never going to play regime by our rules. Yeah. That doesn't even respect like the basic fundamentals, right? Like it still has, you know, arrested citizens. So it's something that we can't think of. And there, there has to be something like going on there, I think, but we're just not aware of what that is, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. So, so again, I, I've been, I've, I, I return to this question of what can I, what can I do? What can the listeners right. do? Uh, it sounds like there's protests at Chinese embassies that, that you know, yeah. sort of grassroots thing that's going on here um you know how can we make how can we help this situation yeah i mean first the uh, you know the very simple thing to do is that's you know use social media for advantage in terms of like spreading resources like new york times articles global mail articles right like you'll have um you know detailed information about what's happening with uyghurs genocide like spreading that internally within your own social networks is one thing because awareness is important uh it's being aware of what's happening because if you're aware um, you're not, you know, natively, you're going to basically uh, look into ways of helping, right? So if you're not even aware, uh, that's that's horrible. So that the first step is awareness. Second step there is obviously, um, you know, boycotting or, you know, moving away from sources that are using forced labor or that don't have clean supply chains, right? So, um, you know, if you are trying to buy a Huawei phone, just don't buy something else, <laughs> buy a Samsung or, you know. Just because it's cheap, don't get it. Yeah, you know, yeah. because you literally have blood on your hands at that, at that point, right? I mean, same thing goes with like, you know, um, right. holding it into account, uh, trying to buy, I guess, you know, domestically or from countries that support human rights, essentially, right? So um, that's the kind of general idea behind that is you try to limit your uh, active consumption of things that are made by countries that are not pro-human rights. Um, so that's one. The second aspect of it is obviously uh, getting involved with us. So, you know, volunteering, um, you know, we do campaigns to speak with MPs. Uh, it always helps to have somebody from a local writing so that they listen more actively. When, you, uh, when you're going to an MP, they always ask, do you, are you coming to me as a constituent? And if we have constituents with us, we can, yes, we can say, yes, we do have somebody here who, uh, you know, we will go and meet with them, for example, right? So we have a volunteer, uh, they are very passionate about the issue. They want to help. We'll schedule an appointment with their MP, with the MP of, with their MP actually, and to sit down and talk and how they can help. Uh, right now, we do have you know a few MPs who are on board and actively working towards it. We want to scale that up um, to increase the uh, the efficiency and the efficacy of the advocacy work that we do. Um, and then the third is to you know if you can uh, you know volunteer with us directly. So you know putting in a certain number of hours a week. So we do uh, content. You know sh- you know making it more digestible taking, you know, reports like this, 40 pages, summarizing them into, uh, you know, bite-sized pieces that you can publish on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, to get that out to people, to understand what's happening. Um, but also we do protests, we actively, we, we organize town halls, we do a lot of events with universities as well, and different community centers to talk with them, get the Q&A and get them uh, involved and active. 
Um, and you can also donate and support to us on our page. So we have a uh, website where you can make donations. Um, and that's, you know, we're trying to right now work with uh, the refugees in Thailand, um, there's around 50 or so Uyghurs that we know who are in Thailand, who are in detention centers over there um, to, you know, make their living situation a bit better, but also eventually get them to Canada and um, settle, um, you know, and give them a chance at uh, basically life without, uh, you know, Chinese government yeah. kind of breathing down their necks in terms of yeah. uh, fear, right? Uh, it's it's a freedom that we take for granted. Uh, you know, we're not worried about, uh, you know, uh, the religion or the faith that you practice, or you know, you have a certain sense of privacy. You know, whatever happens in your home, it stays in your home. Like you have basic rights that yes. we take for granted. That people, you know, in China, the Uyghurs that we have, that you know, it's literally 1984, but on steroids, it's 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 hell, right? So, uh, we want to give them a chance that people who who have left to. Um, get that freedom and to continue or to restart their lives um, without the, the worry of having to be uh, deported. Because there's there's not that many Uyghurs uh, here in Canada, right? There's only about like 2,000 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the stats go around, but um, yeah, there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, you know, we're not talking about uh, hundreds of thousands or, exactly. um, you know, yeah. kind, of, kind, of, kind of figures, but um you, which which is difficult family, because yeah. if you have higher numbers, then you have more pressure. Like like for example, Absolutely. there's a farmers protest in in uh, in India, but because mm -hmm. here in Surrey we have a very large uh, Punjabi community, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of awareness on yeah. That, there's a, there's awesome. it's diaspora, right? Uh, people exactly. who are outside of your country. But exactly. I think at the same time, like yeah. what we've seen interestingly is our issue is nonpartisan. Um, it is not even a particularly kind of faith associated one either but you know we yes. work with uh christians uh, jewish communities uh you know muslim communities obviously are big yeah. one um but what we've seen is like jewish advocates stepping up and saying hey like this is yeah th this is horrible like we need to speak out against this you know we said never again and you know it's it's happening mm. um and you know same thing with muslim communities who are like surprised you know like oh wow like we need to really band together and step up and so it's it's you know working with different communities it's it's an issue of it's it's a human issue right at the end of the day it's yeah. a universal issue where yeah this is everybody a humanitarian can get around effort. it yeah it's a humanitarian effort and so we work with a lot of communities to um to maximize that so you know yes there aren't that many Uyghurs in Canada but you know there's a big Muslim community there's a big Jewish community right um there's other like Uzbekistan you know Kazakhstan Turkish uh communities that will rally around it. and not even that but there's also Tibetans right there's Hong Kongers you're looking at Taiwanese people as well uh you know Falun Gong you know Inner Mongolians so a lot of countries that or a lot of people who feel wronged by China by the Chinese government um and so that you patch together an alliance of of yes. people to create it's a coalition effect. it's a yeah. coalition essentially yeah. yes yeah um and the, so that's what it is so again like you know um it basically comes down to share with as many people as you possibly can a lot of resources out there you can google uyghurs right simple thing like that you know if you're using google <laughs> hopefully you won't be directed to uh, cgtn uh, chinese <laughs> yes be aware propaganda. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah be aware of, like you know new york yeah. times global mail cbc you know um, reputable sources, follow that, share that, um, you know, volunteer, talk to your MP, volunteer with us, uh, make a donation. Um, these are all things that you can do to help uh, in addition to being a conscious consumer of where your things are coming from. 
And and we definitely at, at probably wrong about everything. We here we want to be a conduit as much as possible for this in terms of sharing this information, in terms of making these links available. Uh, so your Absolutely. Instagram, uh, because people like Instagram is the internet is the wild wild west, right? I mean, yeah. it's how do how do you govern that? And and that and that's why you know we so like on your guys's page, you're following. Mm-hmm. I can't, it's, it's, it's so small still. And, and I want to yeah. help again, increasing that awareness. Absolutely. So, so you know, um, <laughs> when you're competing against an entity that has billions exactly. of dollars, unlimited resources at that point, it they really comes down. down. It really comes down to us banding together and, you know, going for it as much as possible. I mean, we haven't run like advertising campaigns. Um, you know, we haven't run digital ads, but you'll see, yeah. sponsored articles from like propaganda outlets being you know posting up on your stream and that's the way that it gets there is you know they're paying money to google or you know facebook or you know they're buying up space yes. and we have to compete with that by they're buying you know, up space to take it away you know what i mean like, yeah. it's not even space being used right that, that, that's part of it right so they're able to you know have a lot more influence so what we need to do is counteract that with with numbers so the more people we yes. can get to share um you know we don't have to spend billions of dollars or millions of dollars even so share this if people get, if you can get a you know um growth from that you know people actively talking about it and generating activity i think that will be uh, effective um you know, we want to get to people who maybe don't read the New York Times or don't read the Globe and Mail. They get their information from Facebook or from Instagram or, um, you know, even mainstream media. Unfortunately, it's, you know, they'll talk about it from time to time, but it, it's not on the top of the agenda, right? Like it, domestic yeah. affairs will come out or they'll talk about something else. It's not attention grabbing. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it, but if, if obviously people talk about it more often, that will definitely help because it all starts with awareness, right? So if yes. you are aware of what's happening, then you start seeing, um, you know, things in a different light, in a different perspective, and that's important. And it all comes down to once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I can't, I can't stop advocating for Uyghurs. Like you know, I have a our team. Everybody has a date. You know, their full time employment, right? So they're doing nine to five. Um, right. Some people are going to school. Um, you, you know, we're all doing this outside in addition to, um, you know, your regular day and. You know, it's exhausting. You know, you're putting a lot of time and effort into it. Sometimes it's frustrating because you don't see the results of, of what's happening, right? Maybe it takes three years or a few years or, you know, a few months or long periods of time before you see, oh, you know, something happened, like, you know, a little yes. bit of a movement. Um, yeah. And you can, but you can't, at the same time, you can't just give up because you know that, yes, you know, life and family, like our people are suffering. There are six million people who are going through what, what's happening right now, right? And, you know, there's a kind of moral, uh obligation to act yes. right um so that's that's part of it so yeah, once this, you know this this discomfort is worth it you know yeah uh, you know we want to make people uncomfortable i mean people have to come to realization it's not something you want to talk about every day nobody wants to talk about you know uh yeah. families being destroyed people being uh you know f- uh, you know forced abortions sterilizations uh organ harvesting these are these are gnarly things to talk about they're yeah. not uh uh, but at the same time, nobody thought the pandemic would ever happen. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not we think it, it could or could not happen. It's it's a fact of reality uh, and just being aware of that reality. That's yes. important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, we can't live in on a pink cloud forever. We have to, we have to realize what's happening and a level of action, 
right? So any way that we can help uh, Zapair, please let us know. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah, check out your your Instagram. So where can where can people find you? Yeah, so um, I, I don't know if you can post that when you do your um, when you post the, uh, the podcast, but we have a website, and then that website uh, it's I support Uyghurs. Uh, yeah. So I support, and then Uyghurs spelled as U Y G H U R S dot org, mm-hmm. um, and that has links to all our social, but also a lot of info on our website. Um, and ways to get involved and donate and all of that. So that's the central um, place to get started with. And then you can follow us, right? If you follow us, we will post content and keep you updated and uh, we will run sure. campaigns as well. Um, you know, we do, uh, we've done petitions before. Uh, you know, we reach out to MPs as well. Uh, we organize protests. So, you know, protests in front of embassies and consulates. Um, you know, so we're, we're active and we will keep you informed and in, in, in making sure that uh, we increase that awareness and make a difference, you know, are we going to be able to stop the genocide? You know, we are a group of like, you know, 10 or 15 people. It's tough, but at the very least we do whatever we can, right? That's, that's all you can do is you can only do whatever you can. And, you know, if enough people do that, then things happen. Like cat. Yeah. You can catch fire, man. You know, I mean, you found me, I'm in Vancouver. So Right. So, I mean, that's, that's how it starts. I mean, for us, it was even surprising. You know, if you told us two years ago that there would be legislation yes. that acknowledges genocide, we'd be like, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to take forever. Like, it might not even happen, yeah. right? But it happened. Like, it's it's slow work, yes. um, building those connections one at a time and uh, awareness. And it's, it's, it's very lengthy, but things can happen. So, um, you know, uh, obviously what we're doing is, is, is working to some degree. Uh, now we just have to continue the effort and um that's where we need people people's help like your listeners like yourself spreading the word and um spreading the awareness and then taking action because like you said once you're aware there's just no way that you can ignore what's happening well thank you very much and uh thank you we we just got a comment here from forgettable vendetta says hello thank you for the podcast i got to know a lot of what i didn't before so thank you for listening zapair uh thank you so much we will keep in touch Sounds and, good, Yara. Uh, uh, I, I, I so value your time and appreciate your information uh, and, and bearing with me because I know I can be a little bit like, I'm a bit of a head scratcher. So thank you for your patience with me. You're welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for having us, for having me. Okay. Bye now and take, take care. care. Bye. Again, that was Zapair Alep sharing with us the current humanitarian concerns regarding the Uyghur people in Western China. Martin Luther King Jr. said that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. These are his words, and they resonate more than ever in today's society. We know that these things are happening, and we must do something to correct them before it's too late. These things will affect us. It's only a matter of time, so we must act now. And you've already started in that journey by listening to this episode. So we thank you for that, for your efforts, because as I mentioned, this is this doesn't make for easy listening. 
This is terrifying and alarming, but something can be done. And it all starts with awareness and knowledge of the problem before us. So you can write to your MPs. You can, uh, you also vote very heavily with your wallets, being mindful of the products of which you purchase, uh, trying to buy things locally or from other nations will help to bring awareness to the Chinese government. And again, I want to emphasize the point here that this is about the Chinese government, not Chinese people. We live in an age where there is uh, rampant uh, Asian phobia, anti-Asian, Asian hate, and that needs to stop because that's this isn't representative of Asian people. This is representative of governments of power and problematic ideology. I, ho I hope you got something out of this episode. Uh, I don't know how enjoyable it was due to the content, but once again, I thank you for listening, and I wish you and your family a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.